Um, there's a new book out by Marie Kondo called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. It is subtitled The Japanese Art of Decluttering and Organizing. Perhaps someone will buy you a copy for Christmas and you'll straight away know what they think about you, right? <laughs> Marie Kondo claims that, all the, that by discarding all unnecessary stuff in our lives, getting rid of the the sort of uh, clutter in, in our homes, you know, that, that we'll find this sort of life-changing magic that will take place. She has testimonials that include people losing weight that they had wanted to lose for a long time or um, that their marriages were turned into happier marriages or that they had greater production in work, you know, all these sorts of things. Who would have thought that getting rid of some of your junk would make so much a difference in your life, huh? I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't much like tidying up. I don't mind a tidy space. In fact, I rather like it. I just don't like the work of actually having to do it. I mean, that's not my thing at all. Uh, and it, the fact of the matter is, I'm I'm a bit of a pack rat. I, any pack rats in here? Any? Don't don't raise your hand. But yeah, you, I I see that twinkle in your eye. There are a few of us here, aren't there? <clears throat> in my life, rare is the moment of greater happiness than when I discover that I have stored something away that I can then use. You know, like um, I'm working on my car in 1996, and I discover that I need, um, I need new radiator you know, clamps and a hose and a clamp, and so I go out to the, the auto parts store. It takes two. You, know, you need one at the top and one at the bottom. So I buy four um, because you never know if one might break, and then you need one for later, right? So you buy four of them, and, and so two of them actually are in storage. And, and I put them in storage, and, and I go about and, and you know, Fast forward to 2014, and I, I'm helping my son work on his, you know, clunker car, and I, we need a radiator hose. And I say to him, wait, 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 in the garage, in the blue bin, you know, and I go to the blue bin in the garage, and maybe it's the green bin, you know, and, and I go through my bins, and I find those radiator hoses in nearly new condition from 1996. There they are, still in the bin, and we pull them out, and we put them on, and it fixes them, I mean, that's great. It is a moment of pure bliss. The only problem is if you store extra radiator hoses, you also store other stuff like nuts and bolts and glues and tapes and adhesives and paints and automobile fluids like radiator fluid and, and uh, you know, whatever else you have, uh, transmission fluid, I mean, and, or antifreeze and oils and, and all these things, stuff upon stuff upon stuff, until you get to a point where maybe a spouse says something like, where are you going to keep all this stuff? Why do you have all of these things? And they go out and buy you some ridiculous book on the, you know, the Japanese art of decluttering. And you're like, why do I need this? Because have you seen our garage lately? That's the problem with pack rats, right? We run out of space to store our stuff. Only we don't. We are ingenious lot. We don't run out of space. What do we do? We build new spaces, right? I was, I was in South Africa um, 10 years ago, and this guy asked me, is it true in America that you build houses and fill them up with stuff, and then you build little houses and fill them up with stuff? <laughs> Yes. There are, I looked this up, there are 59,500 self-storage, mini-storage units in the world. 
There are almost 60,000 little self-storage units in the world. Guess where 49,000 of them are? The United States. We account for 49,000 of the 60,000 units in the entire world. If you took all the self-storage units in, I, I spent a lot of time this week. If you spent a lot of this, the, all these self-storage units, it, you know what I'm talking about, these little like garages and closets and things that you can rent, put a lock on. If you put them all together and added up the square footage, 2.35 billion square feet of storage space. Do you know how much space the United States Department of Defense has under roof around the world? 2.3 billion square feet. We account for more storage space than the U.S. and the entire Department of Defense does around the world. That's every Air Force base, Army fort, US, Marine fort, Coast Guard facility, every, in, in Germany, in Korea, in the U.S. All over, we have more storage space than the U.S. Department of Defense has under roof. If we run out of space, we make more. Only we can't. It's a finite resource. At some point, we have to stop storing stuff, don't we? And I'm guessing that Marie Kondo wrote her book saying that we don't need more storage space. We just need less stuff. You know, we, we need to get rid of some things. And, and as I kind of looked through this book, I heard a, this interview with her on the radio this week and and then I, you know, went up and, and looked at, at the book and, and saw the sort of thing that she says. What we need to do is to get rid of things, to, to declutter. That we need to get rid of the things we don't need so that it makes room for the things that we really do need. The important things of life. To keep only what we really need. In, in, the, in the scripture lessons this morning, I noticed in two of the lessons, the Old Testament lesson and in the Gospel lesson, a similar theme. The first one is 2 Samuel 7. You should look at this lesson and spend some time with this um, for this week. This is perhaps one of the most important texts in all the Bible, 2 Samuel 7. The story is uh, King David, the writer of many of the Psalms, is, is in his new home. He has a palace in Jerusalem. And he's kind of strolling around this sprawling place that he has. And he's thinking, wow, you know, I'm, I'm living pretty large. Uh, the nation of Israel is finally being established as a monarchy. He's, he, they, they finally begin experiencing what it means to live in the promised land. Not everything is, is finished, but there's a lot of good going on. And, and it's a strong country uh, and taking off. And, and the promised land really has become the promised land. And David, in his success and his, his delight, has this new home built out of cedar. It must have been a beautiful, massive place. And he's walking through it one day, and he, he begins to think to himself, Wow, this is a great home. But you know, the people are worshiping in a tent. Because way back, hundreds of years before, when you remember the story of the Exodus, as, as Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt and in towards the promised land, God instructed that they should build a tent. And in this tent, they were to place the Ark of the Covenant. And that God said he himself would dwell in that space, that, that space where the Ark was. And, and so they built this tent. And they put the ark in the center of the tent. And every time that they would move, they would disassemble the tent, pack it all up, carry it to the next place, reassemble it, and put the ark back into the tent. And the presence of God would dwell in the midst of the people wherever that tent was. But here we are hundreds of years later. David looks around and he says, wow, I'm, I'm living in this great palace. 
But the ark is still in a tent. I want to build a building, a permanent structure, a temple, a place where the presence of God will dwell in permanence here in this promised land. And he wants to do this. Of course, the Lord says to David, that's so nice of you. (laughs) But no, not you. You don't get to do that. But here's this little caveat. Because it was in your heart to do this, I'm going to build you a house. And that house will last forever. It's a promise of a dynasty. Uh, There's going to be this dynasty that will live on in David's name, and it will last forever. Forever. Which means even today, the dynasty of David. Well, you say, well, that's not possible. You know, I've been keeping up with world politics. Israel doesn't even have a king. You're thinking of the wrong Israel, because Israel does have a king. And his name is Jesus, the son of David. This kingdom that will last forever. Okay, so David's walking around. I want to build this building. David looks around. He sees himself and his lot in life as being blessed. And he wants to make room for God. He wants to make more room for God, doesn't he? He wants to make a qualitatively better place for God. It's about making space for God in his life. Gospel lesson, Mary. The angel comes to her predicts the uh, the birth of a child, calls her the favored one. It says she's going to have this son, and Mary says, I, I'm not sure how this can happen because I'm still a virgin. And the angel says to her, God can overcome this hurdle. In fact, nothing is in- impossible with God. He can take care of all things. And what does Mary say? She says, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Here I am. I'm yours. I, I belong to God. I, I, I'm, I'm his servant. I'm willing. Eugene Peterson translates it like this. And Mary said, yes, I see it all now. I'm the Lord's maid ready to serve. Let it be with me just as you say. What does Mary do when faced with this, um, this prediction? She puts her life on hold. She puts her plans on hold. She puts her hopes and dreams on hold. All the things that she had, she had anticipated and wanted and set aside. All the things that, that, that young girls who are about to be married think of. She puts it on hold and accepts the call of God. Willingly embraces the thing that God asked her to do. She's just like Isaiah. You remember the, the story in Isaiah? Uh, uh, whom then shall we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, Lord. Send me. Mary says, Here I am, Lord. Take me. Listen, Mary made room for God metaphorically in her life, right? I mean, this isn't really what she had in mind. These weren't her plans. She made room in her plans. She actually literally made room for God in her body. She physically, in her body, became what the tabernacle and the temple was, the dwelling place of God. David made room for God. And Mary made room for God. And you know where this is going, right? I mean, I have telegraphed this punch way ahead. And the challenge to us is, how are we going to make room for God? How are we going to make room for God in our busy schedules, and our busy lives? Maybe even just to take a moment for prayer. I mean, is it too much to ask that we would maybe turn off a radio? In the car or a television set at the home or put down a newspaper and just for a moment 
make room for God in that quietness, in that, in that silence. Maybe we need to make room for the poor and the destitute and those whose lives are not like ours if, in fact, you don't find yourself in that situation. How do you do that? How do you get out of the bubble of middle-class suburbia and take for a moment and say, oh, my word, what must it be like? And how can I make a difference? Or maybe we need to make room for someone who comes to us as emotionally needy, broken or hurting. We take time to just say, you know, this isn't really what I had in mind. This wasn't what I planned to do today. This isn't the conversation I was planning to have. I was, I was heading somewhere else. I had a different plan in mind. And how do we then make room for God in the person who stands before us?